This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. you all doing here <laughs> we don't have our normal table it's it, yeah it, it is it's odd to to be looking at you sort of through the peripheral vision but i want to be be on guard um no so hello uh welcome to a, a special live episode of the weeds fox's policy podcast uh we've got a great um <laughs> we've got a great episode in store for you um you know you know we've got you know, paying customers here live in attendance. So we we actually prepared. We we all read this white paper. Uh, Sarah Sarah has a copy it. of it. Even um, we can look at it. It's it's awesome. It has the most co-authors of any paper I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk in great detail about the healthcare system in Singapore. Um, no, we really are though. It's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> More it's, detail than yeah. you can expect. It's, it's all too, in. It's all too real, but. But, but... Wait, before we start, I've heard tell there's a Sarah Cliff poster in the audience, and I would like it held up. Or possibly it's just too dark to see. Oh, there it is. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Thank I, you. That's amazing. That is wonderful. All right. But, you know, so, but not, not all segments can be, can be showstoppers about <laughs> Singapore. Um, so, so we were going <laughs> to dabble in the subject of Donald Trump and and specifically what has surprised us about the Trump administration so far. Um, the fact that Donald Trump became president obviously was surprising <laughs> to many people. Um, but I, I will say that given that he was elected president, I have really been surprised by how little action we've seen on the kind of trade protection themes that he campaigned on. And and the one reason I, I really expected that to happen is something Ezra likes to say is that, you know, everyone is the hero of their own story. And there were a lot of different narratives about why Donald Trump won and, and how he won. But I thought that over those narratives, the one by far that made Donald Trump into the hero was the story by which a bipartisan elite consensus on trade had screwed over American workers for decades. Along came Donald Trump, this brash outsider who'd been writing for decades about bad trade deals. He connected to the working class, built a new kind of Republican majority, and now he was going to deliver. Um, and he really hasn't. Uh, t- today, he did his like his signature executive order on, on Buy American. And I-, I was looking at it, and it says, okay, federally funded infrastructure projects need to be made with American steel. And that's not nothing, but it was a, like, that was a provision of Obama's stimulus. And it's, it's such a far cry from the kind of drastic revision. He said on day one he was going to renegotiate NAFTA. And and he could really do that. A, a lot of things require Congress and stuff, but there's a section in the NAFTA treaty. He could just like mail a letter to to uh, Trudeau and say, uh, we're, we're, we're coming. I don't know that that's how you do it. Um, <laughs> but there's a 90-day notice period. And he said he'd do it in his first 100 days. And, and like, he hasn't. I so what's your theory? Like, why? You don't need Congress. Like, why not do it's it? It's chicken. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I mean, it's, you know, like the official story I'm sure we've all seen is like, oh, Jared Kushner is up and Bannon is down. Um, 
But Trump, Trump has books from the 80s where he's like, oh, Japan is killing us on trade. This is, I think, the key to why this is genuinely surprising. So we did a, a project at Vox during the campaign where we, we read every Donald Trump book, every single one except the book about golf, which he does have a book about how Donald Trump is awesome at golf, which... Might have been good uh, and probably has some profound pieces in it. But one of the, the lessons of these books, again, going back a long ways, Trump is not inconsistent. Uh, there are things where he seems to have weak opinions and there are things where he's changed his opinion. But on trade, he has held the same view for a very, very, very long time. This sort of transactionalist view of our relationships, in particular economic relationships with other countries, that in any deal we are either winning or losing and probably losing, it goes back a long time. So when people said Trump doesn't believe a lot of what he says or is not deeply committed to it, that always seemed correct to me. There were a lot of issues he was having to, to confront for the first time. What he thinks about nuclear waste and yucca, I, I just don't think he cares. <laughs> but trade is the one where he cared. And among other things, it implies that even on the commitments you would think are quite core to him, he is more easily swayed by advisors than certainly I predicted. Trump, who's been very truculent and very stubborn on the kind of politician he will be, he never let advisors take away his cell phone for any length of time, for instance, <laughs> uh, decided that as soon as he got in and you know, Gary Cohn or whoever said it'd actually be a bad idea to pull out an NAFTA or, or substantially renegotiate it. He just said, sure, uh, I, I guess you're right. It, it really, I think, backs up the view that what Trump wanted to be was president. And while people keep saying his first 100 days is not going well, and it is not, it is true that on every one of those days he was president. <laughs> so every single one of those days has been this wild, unexpected success. <laughs> He, he gave this interview where he said to someone, I guess, this is real, where he said, I guess I must be doing something right because I'm president and you're not. <laughs> Which, again, I think is true and is not a, a, an, un, an incorrect thing to say, but I think bespeaks a more narrow set of ambitions for what he wanted to do with the office. <laughs> than I had anticipated. It also speaks to like a mismatch between like frenetic activity and things actually happening. Like that's one of the things that really jumps out to me a lot is it feels like there's still a lot of talk about trade and like a lot of like statements that existed and like, like Ezra was saying, it's still very consistent, but a lack of doing things. And you know, in a lot of spaces you can blame that on the whole system. Like you have Congress to work with, you have the Freedom Caucus and the Tuesday group and you have your whole bureaucracy and that's like very hard to get your hands around. But this one's like so mystifying to me because it's like it's something the administration could do, right? Like you're saying, Matt. Like it, and I guess maybe it's like the political realities of it setting in. But that's the thing that sets us apart from other things we have seen a lack of action on. Um, what, what, what one thing I, I wonder about is is to the extent that he is properly informed about this stuff. I'm, I'm struck by the number of times he said that statutorily he had to do health care before tax reform, which isn't, <laughs> it isn't true. And it's, I mean, we can have a detailed explanation, but it's like Paul Ryan wanted to do it this way. And he had reasons to think it would be good to do it in this order, but it was just 
his decision. And Donald Trump could have said, no, I think you're wrong. I think that repealing health, uh, Obamacare will be really, really difficult. Um, But he appears to have been convinced that he can't. And it's not obvious to me that Trump like knows how withdrawing from NAFTA would work. Uh, it's possible that if Gary Cohn and Rens Priebus like don't want him to do that, they're telling him, "Oh, Mr. President, it's so complicated. You know, we need all this, whatever." And and like that's just that's so just not right. I I have heard stories from multiple people, and I think some of these have actually been reported in the press too. But this they, is the press. <laughs> You're the press reporting them right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> You're blowing my mind. It has ha- it happened continually during AHA that <laughs> Trump would be watching television, which you're the president and you have lots of time, and people would come on television and say, this is a bad bill that no conservative groups like, that nobody likes. And he would turn to people and say, is that true? Is it true that people don't think this bill is good? And the people nearby would say, no, Mr. President, it's not true. And then he would say, oh, okay, great. And you can actually see he'll give these interviews where he says the, what the press is reporting about the bill, he doesn't even recognize it. But he is operating in a place of extremely limited information, despite sitting atop one of the most powerful information-generating machines in existence in the world today. And one thing that does appear to be happening is he has not bothered. I almost don't want to say bother. It is not clear to me that he holds the particular set of skills necessary to really work through the set of options and ideas available to him. And he's very, very, very reliant on the people around him. And when the cable news comes on or when you hear somebody say, oh, your health care bill is bad and nobody supports it, or oh, you have not actually followed through on any of your promises on trade, he actually appears to just turn to the people who are giving him this advice in the first place and say, are they right that you're constantly lying to me and sending me down a bad road (laughs) that accords with your agenda but betrays mine? And the person says, of course not, Mr. President. And he says, well, okay, fake news. (laughs) All right. So what what, what surprised you, Sarah? Well, so I know it feels kind of obvious in hindsight, and Ezra's going to gloat a little bit here. I am dumbfounded by how quickly the repeal and replace effort seems to have gone totally off the rails and show yes i know i know ezra for for people who are listening to this later he is casually brushing off his shoulder um but i don't even know if you expected how quickly this would happen i know it was impossible to, <laughs> I that was impossible to was predict. on vacation for one week because i was on a honeymoon and i left and thank you and um and I left and there was a healthcare bill and I came back four days later and I was in the airport and Paul Ryan is talking about how Obamacare is the law of the land. It was an insane turnaround. And I think the thing, the thing that surprised me wasn't necessarily the fact it failed because legislating is hard and, you know, I covered the Affordable Care Act and that died nearly a dozen deaths as, you know, I can find old blog posts from when I worked at Newsweek declaring the Affordable Care Act dead. So my predictions are not, do not have a great track record. But Given that this is a party that spent seven years campaigning on this, that, you know, had really wanted to do this, the fact that they 
move so quickly that they they put out the bill with no negotiation. Um, they put it out there. They did not seem to consult with any major healthcare groups. So you just saw every group. I think the tanning industry was like one of three that was in favor of this bill, and maybe the retailers. Um, it, it just spoke to. I think that surprises. The thing that surprises me is not that it didn't pass, but the lack of desire to work on it. I did not realize it was so strong that there actually does not really seem to be a desire in the Republican Party to touch health reform. And I totally understand that because it's complicated and involves screwing up a lot of people's insurance. And I don't think Obamacare was a political winner for the Obama administration, but it surprised me how little they wanted to work on this. I thought this would be like a months-long, drawn-out process And instead, it was a three-week, very fast process. I think that one thing that was an interesting subsidiary surprise in that broader (laughs) Hindenburg-like immediate disaster (laughs) was that, okay, Donald Trump, not a details guy, did not get deep into the weeds of healthcare. But the one thing that he plausibly seemed to be is somebody who would get very interested in deal-making, would really enjoy working with Congress, having people over all the time. And the thing that you saw happen very quickly was as soon as the deal proved difficult, he dropped it in days. He just had no interest. He had one move, and the move was to call the bluff, right, immediately. The thing, I I joke, but it's literally not a joke (laughs) that (laughs) I have, because I'm, almond milk in my fridge that lasted longer than the than the healthcare bill and and the thing that this is why Trump won this is why Trump won um, I mean and for the record not like milk in the fridge just like things that have been in my fridge so much longer than the I mean it was very 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 fast but he once it got hard he had this single move, which was to say, call the vote. You think you're going to vote against me? Come out and vote against me. And then Paul Ryan walked to the White House and he said, if you do that, they're going to vote against you. <laughs> and then he said, okay, don't call the vote. And, that was, and, then, and then he walked out and said, vote, we're done. And that was it. There is no great deal making in there. He's not interested. He doesn't keep going. Then he realized later that maybe he should keep at least seeming like they're trying. So they continue to seem like they're trying. And, you know, in the background, they might be trying. Although they're not, it should be noted, trying at all to figure out a way to sell whatever they're cooking up. And so it does not seem very real to me at the moment. But he does not want to put in the work to make deals. And the reason that is surprising to me is I don't think making a deal with the Russian government to open Trump hotels or whatever he was doing in Moscow is easy. I think that takes a long time. You have to travel. These things take a long time to work out. I'm not, I don't think it's simple to open golf courses in Scotland. He actually was in a business where the time frame of things is very long, right? It's hard to build a building. It's hard to build a hotel. It's hard to build a resort. 17 days. And he was... Well, so I think I, I think one thing he he learned there, right, that that I think has struck a lot of presidents over the years in one way or the other is that the presidency is a very powerful office, but it leaves you with a very weak negotiating position because you can't you can't really credibly walk away, right? Because as soon as it became clear that there was an effort 
at repeal of the Affordable Care Act, it became, will the Trump administration's repeal drive succeed? Right? And so to walk away and break the deal is a loss for Trump. And members of Congress, they can just do whatever. Like, nobody even cares about members of Congress. They don't have first 100 days. They don't have these, like, heroes arc narratives, things like that. Mark Meadows gets to be a big deal by being a sticking point. Um, and it's just, it's in, and you've seen him try other variants of this, right? So there's the, like, I'll make Obamacare implode. And so then Democrats will bail me out. And Democrats are like, no, we won't bail you out. Um, <laughs> And he keeps trying – this is a tactic that I think, you know, it, it works in real estate development, right? You can say, okay, I need another concession or we won't build the building. And if you're Donald Trump, that's fine. There's a lot of different Trump buildings all around the world. He doesn't need there to be a building in Baku or a building in Moscow, something like that, whereas the mayor of the town really does need the project. Uh, the president is obviously a much more powerful and important person than a real estate developer, but he has less leverage in a deal-making process than a real estate developer does. And, you know, I... I I think they'll come to terms with that over time. But this kind of like, oh, I'm going to walk, like it, it doesn't work. The, the president can't walk away. I mean, also when like it's not a building, but it's a bill that causes 24 million people to lose health insurance. Wow. That seems like a less desirable proposal than like, you know, because if you're comparing to other deals, right, like you're bringing in economic activity, you're like bringing in this exciting yeah, it's thing. Not, it's not as fun. And this is something that always struck me as like the big problem with the healthcare bill, like why it failed so quickly is it was never clear what problem it was trying to solve. Like when you're building a hotel, you're like building a hotel and like that's the project you're doing. It was never quite clear what this bill was doing. You know, one thing I would disagree with you on, on um, members of Congress, I think they actually do care a lot because they're the ones who are going back in January and hearing from like a lot of like really angry people who all of a sudden they were getting yelled at about death panels. And I think sure. that's one of the things that made them so skittish that you know you just saw this turn on a dime it's been really surprising to me um seeing obamacare's popularity rise in the polls like i'm used to it just being like this thing everyone's divided on and like nothing changes and there's like this kaiser family foundation graph i love and it's just like two straight lines and it's great um but those lines are diverging now like the healthcare laws started getting popular and i think that's something that might have hit members of congress a little more personally than the president like they actually have to like hear from these people, you know, they represent a lot of districts that gained pretty significantly from this. So I think they have um, a pretty big stake in it, too, and, you know, we're not yeah. jazzed about where things were going. All right, Ezra, let's, let's go fast, because people want to hear about a certain city-state. Well, I've been surprised at how little Donald Trump has talked about the Singaporean health Without editors, we need to work on the transition. As a, no, we're not transitioning yet. The, the broad arc, uh, which I think both of you have implied here, I am just surprised at what a total fiasco the first 100 days have been. This has been much more chaotic. So I thought you would have one of two things happen. I thought either you would have a highly chaotic, unconventional presidency, or you would have a reasonably effective, orthodox, ideologically orthodox presidency. The thing I did not foresee happening is an ideologically orthodox, chaotic, ineffective presidency. <laughs> the way I figured it was that if Donald Trump was willing to endorse whatever Paul Ryan wanted to do, then it would pass. Right? Paul Ryan's the Speaker of the House. Mitch McConnell agrees on what Paul Ryan wants to do. They've, they've 
figured this stuff out. They've passed a bunch of uh, preliminary legislation. They had their reconciliation architecture. It was all there. So I imagine that there was a world in which Donald Trump walked in and said, I actually meant what I said. I want health care for everybody with lower deductibles. And Paul Ryan said, that is the exact opposite of what I want in life. I want everybody. <laughs> I want higher deductibles and fewer people to be insured. And then they were at loggerheads because Donald Trump decided Ezra, to be Ezra, I think really that's populist. too cruel to Paul Ryan. <laughs> it really robs people to have patient-centered outcomes. Sure. Um, but if he was going... So I figured if he was going to do that, you could really imagine it locking. But the world where he walked in and said, sure, whatever you want to do, and they still couldn't do anything. And then simultaneously, he couldn't run a coherent internal process and seems to have these completely paralyzing power centers within his administration. That is a worst of both worlds presidency that I thought he would avoid that either there would be a win by the people who wanted to position him against the Republican Party, or there'd be a win by the Republican Party. But not that all these sides would lose simultaneously. (laughs) They would do nothing. He would overturn almost literally every campaign promise he made, particularly on foreign policy, but on a lot of other things, tie himself to a series of extremely unpopular positions that will sharply undercut his arguments next time because he did have a lot of advantage running on no record and being seen as somebody who you know you could project whatever you wanted onto him he's not going to have that opportunity next time and with nothing to show for it it's a real fiasco and he does not seem to have a theory about what happens next except that maybe he will gut Steve Bannon on live television <laughs> And something, it's... Record ratings. <laughs> it's um, wild. It's be huge. So you know who got things done in a dramatic way? Uh, oh, I Lee, this Lee Kuan Yew <laughs> and the People's Action Party. That was very strong. All right. I have prepared, <laughs> I hold in my hand certain facts about the Singaporean healthcare system. So the reason that... Yeah, why are we talking about this? Yeah. We are talking about this because every time healthcare comes up, What you hear from a lot of people, actually, but particularly conservatives, will say, yeah, liberals have their Western European systems and they all love their single payer, but there is in the world a better healthcare system than that. There's a true healthcare paradise, and that is Singapore. Ross Douthat in the New York Times wrote, "Um, there is Singapore's healthcare system is the marvel of the wealthy world. Fox News after the election, I'm sorry, before the election, wrote an op-ed called Want to Ditch Obamacare? Let's copy Singapore's healthcare miracle. So conservatives really like Singapore, and the idea is Singapore is this great free market system. On the World Health Organization's somewhat methodologically unsound ranking of healthcare systems where the U.S. was 37, <laughs> Singapore is number six, which is better than 37, it turns out. It's high. The U.S. spends 18% of GDP. This is actually, I think, kind of amazing. We spend about 18% of GDP on healthcare. Singapore spends 4%. So they spend roughly a quarter, what we do, actually less than a quarter. So that's all great. The thing is, (laughs) Singapore is not 
Conservatives like Singapore because what they say it is is a free market healthcare system where what you have is patients actually spending their own money. So they've developed a real market in healthcare, and 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 you see these amazing outcomes: great healthcare outcomes, super cost efficient. It's wonderful. Singapore is what would have happened if you had Milton Friedman design a socialized healthcare system. If you if you tried to propose anything like this in America, you would be locked in jail. So. It's based on three things. The three M's are called, and because I don't want to get them wrong, I'm going to keep this in front of me. So one is you have Medisave, and Medisave is a part that conservatives really like about Singapore. <laughs> but I don't think they've quite thought it through. Medisave... But they think it's like a health savings. Right? Yes, that's what they think it is like. Medisave is a compulsory savings program where the government forces you, forces you, to take not if you're a working age somewhere between 7 to 9.5% of your income divert it into this medical this basically a health savings account but not just that the health savings account it doesn't just buy any healthcare you want the government among other things controls pharmaceutical costs by deciding which drugs you will be able to use the money they have forced you to save for healthcare on so you can't just buy like any drug you want just because you think it's a good drug. It actually has to be like the government has to say, okay, you can buy this drug. So you have a, a you have an individual mandate to save money to buy the health care the government will allow you to buy. <laughs> that is how sounds that works. familiar. Then there's MediShield, which is a low-cost, catastrophic medical insurance scheme. So you have this sort of HSA that you're forced to have. Then you have MediShield, which is catastrophic insurance. Then you have MetaFund, which is a safety net program, which is actually super interesting. The way they do this is that they give the money, basically, it's not quite, but basically to hospitals, and then let the hospitals decide which cases they think they should give the money to, um, which is interesting. So that's how it works. Uh, it also comes in the context of a health delivery system where the government basically controls all supply. So 80% of hospital beds are in government-run hospitals, they decide really how many doctors there are in the country. They decide which drugs go on the formulary that people can actually afford to buy because these are the drugs that are subsidized under MediShield versus uh, under MediSave versus the one that isn't. If you're a hospital, you have to ask the government for permission to buy new technologies because one way you keep the cost of healthcare down is not letting hospitals buy all this new stuff that costs a lot of money but may not actually do all that much good. Uh, the way the government chooses which drugs to do, nobody actually knows. Unlike in England and other places where they have these rationing schemes, these yeah these rationing schemes, but explain how they make their decisions. In Singapore, they refuse to explain how they make their decisions. And I read in one place where somebody said the reason they do that is so drug companies just don't bother them and don't try <laughs> lobbying, which is interesting. And then finally, and to me, this is sort of the the key point. Because Singapore's system, which is, Singapore's a rich country, but because its system is so insanely cheap, again, it's less than a quarter of the cost as a percent of GDP, as ours is, the actual exposure to healthcare spending of your average Singaporean is much, 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 much lower than the average exposure to healthcare spending of your average American or your American business. So the idea that folks in Singapore are cost-sensitive in a way that we aren't, it actually just doesn't make any 
real sense. Like it's true that there's a little bit less of a third payer, but what's really happening in prices is prices are regulated, so the whole thing is much, much, much cheaper. But here you pay much more to participate in the system. The cost sharing, which may not be structured the same way, ends up giving you a huge amount more exposure to the actual cost of medical care, and we still have all these crazy outcomes. So there's a lot more to get into here. I think Singapore is fascinating, and it may, in a perfect world, be a a fascinating way to run a healthcare system. But the idea that conservatives who think the individual mandate is unconstitutional, and just a couple years ago passed a prescription drug benefit that does not let the government negotiate down drug prices or set its own formulary, are wandering around saying Singapore is a great system that accords with conservative values, it's, it's baffling. It's completely baffling. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. I think one of the things I find most impressive about the Singaporean healthcare system is that they're able to run this system without seeming outrage. Like when you look at the British system, for example, they're very transparent about when they deny drugs and how they deny drugs. And there are constantly moments of outrage when they won't cover a certain cancer drug that they've decided to is too expensive. And they're super thorough about it. They put out this whole explanation about why it's not worth the money and they try to haggle and they can't get them to the price. And then you see, you know, these stories in the British press um, about, about these drugs, like Avastin, for example, a breast cancer drug that's pretty expensive when they wouldn't cover Avastin. It was a huge controversy there. And you don't really see those coming out of Singapore. And I, I don't think that speaks to something special their healthcare system is doing. I think it might speak more to, like, Singapore just being, like, a kind of very different, weird place. Um, you know, I told my husband we were doing this segment on Singapore, and he's an economist, and he's saying the first thing you learn in economics is, like, don't use Singapore as your baseline because it's just a really weird place. Like, super high GDP per person. It'd be like, um, you know, using D.C. as your example to compare against the states. Like, D.C. is its own unique snowflake because it is basically just a city and very different from all other states here. And if you look at it, you know, I think one of the things that also makes the Singapore system works is they don't have to spend as much money subsidizing the poor as we do here. We have much more income inequality. We don't have as high, you know, GDP per capita. So that means something, if we have something like Metafund here, for example, we'd probably have to spend a lot more money on it. So, you know, it's, it is very clear that Singapore is doing something right. It is 
kind of astounding. The I think Matt looked up the life expectancy. It's pretty high, but it's astounding. They really eighty three. Okay, eighty three. So they've high life expectancy, low health spending. What's unclear is like how they're getting there. I, I think a big part of it is definitely price regulation, and some of it might be that HSA feature. But it's really hard to untangle those. And it seems like a healthcare system very specific to like a small, tiny place. So I'm I'm skeptical about the Singaporean health miracle. And so one reason is, if you look at their their life expectancy, 83 years old, very impressive, higher than the United States. Um, it's also a, an Asian country. And if you look at the life expectancy for Asian Americans, uh, it's quite a bit higher than it is in, in Singapore. Um, and if you look at you know, basic things we know about public health, right? So Singapore has very high taxes on alcohol. Singapore has an extremely uh, rigid and, unlike in the United States, effective drug prohibition regimen, right? People really are, like, not doing narcotics there. Um, Singapore has a 15% car ownership rate, which is not just lower than the car ownership rate in the United States. It's lower than the car ownership rate in New York City. Um, They don't have guns. Um, So if you imagine America, (laughs) right... With no guns, less booze, much less drugs, radically less driving, our public health outcomes would soar, right? With no, and then if you just, I mean, if you like replaced uh, like all these white people with, with Asians, it, it already it already goes up. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Which is to say, if you look at any sort of serious study of the, the determinants of health outcomes, you see that lifestyle factors and genetic factors tend to matter more than uh, healthcare treatment type, type stuff. And I have never really seen people like peer into trying to really understand what is the efficacy of Singaporean healthcare per se. Um, um, In Lee Kuan Yew's autobiography, he talks about how he started with an emphasis on public health. Um, And, you know, he has, I I forget exactly what it is, but, you know, it's stuff about mosquitoes, it's stuff about uh, sanitation, sewers. I mean, Singapore was incredibly poor when when he took over. And, And to me, that is the big lesson, is the lesson that you see over and over and over again, which is that the most effective interventions for improving population health don't really come from healthcare financing. It's like, can you get people to not smoke? Can you get people to eat more vegetables? Can you get people to exercise more? We've, we, we've talked about on the show before, uh, life expectancy in the United States after going up, it started going down, um, very largely because of, uh, you know, drug abuse and, and alcohol abuse issues, not because we've, like, forgotten how to treat cancer patients or, or something like that. Um, so I think there is, like, an incredible success story there. Some of it's not replicable. Obviously, the United States is not going to have a 15% car ownership rate. Uh, we're not a city. Um, but big American cities could be more like Singapore. So I did a piece a couple of years ago where I went to the Cleveland Clinic, And I reported on not how they were treating patients, but how they were treating their own workers. Cleveland Clinic employs a huge number of people. And they had actually been able to make their health spending go down over a a series of a couple of years. And it was very, very impressive. It had been very high before. But when I I talked to them and found out what they were doing, it was 
and I don't mean this negatively, a dystopian nanny state. (laughs) So you were not allowed to buy soda anywhere on the premises of the Cleveland. And the premises are big. They're very big. (laughs) You you can't just go across the street. Was that they had a McDonald's that had managed to sign before all this happened a very long term lease. And so it's the only place you could get like unhealthy food and the whole thing. And it was apparently an unusually profitable McDonald's, <laughs> which is one reason the company did not want to close it down. But you did that. They would find people if they were caught smoking, and they had fired a couple of doctors who were caught smoking on premises multiple times. Like you would lose your job for being caught smoking cigarettes. They would give you more money if on certain blood tests, different outcomes began to be shown. So you can do this. You can cut, you can change people's health outcomes and even through doing that, change your overall health spending. But it isn't this namby-pamby, let's build some parks bullshit. It is, we are taking your cigarettes, we are taking your guns, we are taking your sugary drinks, um, and you can't have them anymore. And I don't think that we as a country are comfortable with that, and I'm not making an argument that we should be. But I often find that when people have this debate or they have this argument, that it gets very caught up about things like the $15 billion prevention fund in the Affordable Care Act. When it's really about, you're welcome, person. One person clapping for my invocation, possibly negatively, of the $15 billion prevention fund, which also... Which now it's like 10 or... It's been cut a lot. Yeah, it's everybody's favorite thing to cut in the bill. Yeah. But... but Pour one out for Harkin. You really have to push. And, I mean, Singapore did... The other thing about Singapore, it was founded 60 years ago. And so... when Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's young. And so it emerged and moved very, very, very fast in its economic development. And so there was a lot less just built up that they had to compromise with as they began to build out a system, as they began to, to pass laws. There is just a tremendous amount of compromise with the current system in this country. It is trivial. It is absolutely trivial to conceptually design a healthcare system that would work much, much, much better than America. It, it is like, like a kid could do it. Just don't do this. Like just do something different. <laughs> The problem is coming up with a healthcare system that you can overlay on America's and that has a smooth transition, not at all impossible. We can do it, we should do it, but it is definitely difficult. There's just a lot built up. Um, And if anything, the, the great thing Singapore did, and they did this very consciously, was they tried to stop that kind of interest group development and they tried to stop some of those status quo from emerging because they thought from the beginning, looking around at other countries, that if that happened, then they'd be on a path they couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the Singapore miracle feels like the fact they just, I think it was 1986, they just decided like, okay, this is the healthcare system and now you give us 9% on healthcare. And I think it started, I was reading very exciting literature on the history of Singapore last night, which is really, it's just a really interesting place. Um, And I highly recommend that literature if you have nothing else to do tonight. Um, But they, you know, started with the compulsory um, retirement savings scheme when they were under the British, and then just decided, okay, we're layering on healthcare too. And from everything I read, it didn't seem like there was, again, like this political outcry, like that's just how things work now. And I think as we really hit on something that 
you can't really go halfway with this stuff. I remember there's a story I wrote a few years ago about food deserts and this idea that everywhere in the country should have access to healthy foods. And if you bring in the healthy foods, um, and this was part of, you know, this was funded by the Prevention Fund. I was writing a series about that Prevention Fund. And that if you bring the healthy the foods, the, um, you know, fruits and vegetables into all the corner stores that didn't have them, you'd see good public health outcomes. And as nice as that sounds, it just doesn't have great research. There's just not really good research with this idea that the problem is access. Because it turns out, unsurprisingly, Doritos are just way more delicious than a banana. And that even when you have both, you know, people are still going to pick the Doritos because they taste very good and that's why they are so prevalent. And I think it, you know, I think what speaks to me, like the Singapore miracle doesn't really seem to be about that they got everyone to be very cost conscious and they gave them a savings account. It's the fact that they they got it off the ground. They said, like, this is our healthcare system. And everyone said, all right. And they were, like, able to go on that path. It's really hard to imagine that happening here. Right. I mean, it's, it's worth saying on, on a number of these points. I mean, I think I have uh, some, some friends who, who live in Singapore, and they, they push back on Americans who characterize it as a dictatorship. Um, but it's a country where only one political party has ever governed. Um, <laughs> They hold elections. The opposition does better in the elections sometimes. It does worse other times. The government recalibrates its positions in response to those kinds of things. But it is not a competitive political system in which the prime minister worries a lot that he is like on a knife's edge of losing office. Um, they have never had a, a real something that really puts to the test, I think in a fundamental way, the question of whether the ruling party would be prepared to give up power peacefully. Um, but they have never faced that problem, right? The United States is, it's big, it's federal, we have a lot of veto points, but also we have clearly a very competitive political system in which people worry a lot about losing elections and about alienating people. And it is good, I think, to have a competitive political system, but it clearly discourages you. One reason people like to talk about Singapore is that it is a country where it seems like if you had some really good white papers and could really <laughs> convince a couple of ministers that it would be a good idea to have like a 100% sales tax on cars, that they would just go do it. Uh, whereas and in America- Basically have. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's something like that. It's a permit fee. It comes up in, in Fast and Furious 6. Uh, um, One of the great documentaries about Singapore. <laughs> well, about the global auto industry and car culture. It's, it's not something you would do in the United States because- you politicians would not be comfortable saying, well, okay, we're going to do this, and in the end, it's going to work out fine, and so people, you know, will continue to be satisfied with the status quo. You'd be like, no, people are going to freak out, and so we don't do it. So I, I made, when I opened this up, I put it in the context of Republicans, who I think push the Singapore example, either without knowing that much about it or being serious about what it implies for government involvement in the system. But I think the big overarching lesson of it is applicable to Republicans and Democrats, which is, and this is a theme, I think, of, of both of our work in the last couple of years, every 
what every system that is not ours, every high-performing system that is not ours, what they all share is not an insurance design. The way Canada works, and I'm not sure if you want to call England high-performing, but it's cheap. Um, the way France works, the way Japan works, the way the Netherlands works, the way Singapore works, they're quite different. You have single-payer and socialized and multi-payer and this kind of weird Singaporean... All-payer rate setting you have that? on the yep. classics. But, so that's where I'm going with this, though, that it's not... We are very focused in America on insurance design. <laughs> and we're very focused on the consumer side of what will happen and how do you change prices by or I'm sorry how do you change costs by exposing people to more competition or exposing them to, to more of the price what everybody else does is not try to focus on the demand side they focus on the supply side they focus on what are things going to cost how many doctors are there going to be what is a hospital allowed to charge and when you do that and you drive prices down by basically setting them and saying that this is how much a Xanax is going to cost. Here's how much an, appendec an appendectomy will be. Here's how much a normal childbirth will be. And you just set that much lower. It actually opens up a huge number of options on the insurance side, particularly if you're able to do it long ago. If you tried, any, if you tried a lot of these systems now, you just did a full-on move, really terrible things would happen. So imagine you tried the Singaporean system in America. For the MetaSave, MetaShield thing to work, MediSave actually has to be able to cover a very large percentage of your healthcare costs. But because our system costs whatever it is, 4x times more, you would need a tremendous amount of compulsory saving to get there. You would actually need to make people in America save much more than they save in Singapore. It would be brutal, actually. And then the catastrophic would have to be very different. Just what people would feel would be much, 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 much more painful because they're doing all this in a context where the prices are much lower. We'd be doing it in a context where they're much higher. Similarly, if you moved over to something like the Canadian single-payer system and just moved prices down to the Canadian level or even didn't, we have a lot of very unprofitable rural healthcare systems. And a lot of those hospitals would close if you brought prices down. I mean, one way you constrain supply is that things that don't make that much sense don't exist anymore. And we have a very big country. We have a lot of space. Now, there are ways to subsidize that. You can do it. But you have to make that decision to do it. And having let prices get so out of control, almost anything we want to do becomes much more dangerous almost immediately because the system is reliant on very high prices to function other people, they pay doctors completely differently than we do. In, in England, they use capitation. It's one reason the system is so cheap, where if a doctor basically is treating you too much, they lose money. There's an incentive to treat less, unlike in our system where there's an incentive to overtreat. Some places use salaried doctors, which I think is, a, is generally a more serious thing. But if you wanted to change all doctor payment in this country... A lot of doctors would plausibly stop being doctors. Some people would stop becoming doctors. Now, you could then make secondary changes to open it up or have nurse practitioners do more. But it's, it's all to say that we don't think clearly about this. We think about what we pay or how our insurance is designed and not what it costs or how to regulate prices or how many hospitals there should be or how many people there should be providing health care, right? If you just had way more doctors, it could arguably be a lot cheaper. And it creates a very narrow debate. And that is true among 
Democrats, and it is true among Republicans. It's not true among every one of them, and I think liberals who are very serious about single-payer understand this pricing issue a lot better. But both political parties are operating within a context where they're ignoring most of what the rest of the world does and just arguing about insurance system design and how high deductibles are going to be. Speaking of things we're ignoring... (laughs) (laughs) Is that the transition to the white paper? life expectancy. All right. So we have, we're, we're up with the white paper, and then questions are after this. Um, so this is a very exciting NBER paper, because we figured we'd stick with a classic for, um, for the taping. Um, has the title, How the Growing Gap in Life Expectancy May Affect Retirement Benefits and Reforms. Um, which sounds like something sounds like several a dozen people would want to yeah, sign Yeah, so I'm sure it has at least co-authors. several dozen downloads on the NBR and, and website. And several dozen authors. Several dozen. Yeah, so, well, I'll get to that in a second. Just so, read them all, and the show's over. <laughs> so there's a there's a lot of like all stars here. You have Peter Orzag, Justin Wolfers, um, Will, Bill Gale is on this paper. There's literally a dozen authors. Alan Auerbach. Alan Auerbach is on Alan it. Auerbach. No, no, no. I wasn't gonna forget him. Lewis Shiner. Now I, I feel like I have to read the rest of them because <laughs> I've read about a half dozen names now. Okay, Courtney Coyle. I don't know her last name. Dana Goldman, Ronald Lee, Charles Lucas, Brian Singer, David Well, and Rebecca Wong. That's a lot of authors on a Yeah, paper. it's like one author per every 22 words. Basically. One author per chart. Anyway, so the deal with this paper is we've talked a lot about research um, about life expectancy, that you are seeing this growing gap in life expectancy between people of different economic means, where you see much faster gains in life expectancy among rich Americans and kind of a plateauing out and sometimes a drop among lower lower-income Americans. The thing that this paper looks at is, you know, what that means for benefit programs, how this change in life expectancy is changing the different benefits we get from the government, like Social Security, disability, um, Medicaid and Medicare are both included in this. And, um, you know, unsurprisingly, you see lower-income Americans get more from Medicaid, um, higher-income Americans get more from Social Security. But when you add it up all together, the thing they identify in this paper, the thing that is, you know, disturbing to them is that the total, the gap is widening, that you're seeing for men born in the 1930s, there really wasn't a gap. When you added up all those benefits, it was about roughly the same we were all getting from the government. When you look at men born in the 1960s, um, people in the highest income quintile are getting $130,000 more in benefits than men in the lowest income quintile. So that's a change over 30 years. That's a pretty significant change. Most of that comes out to high-income people living longer, and Social Security really benefits you if you're living longer, and Medicare as well, because you're getting those benefits year after year. Um, it's just accruing each year, so you know the person who can live the longest is benefiting the most from those programs. But Here's the kind of bizarre thing about this paper. So they spend the end of it, like when you get down to like page 30-something, kind of like they're saying, you know, what could we do to fix this? What policies could we implement to make this better? And they explore a lot of policies that they say won't work. So they explore, you know, should we lower the retire, lower the early retirement age, or sorry, raise, raise the early, early retirement yeah. age, or raise the regular retirement age, which are both cuts to Social Security. Um, they explore some other things, too, and they basically find, like, none of this really moves the ball very much. And they kind of, at the end of the paper, like, throw up their hands and say, like, oh, well, there's, like, really not much we can do. It looks like it's a very hard problem. But the weird thing I think that struck all of us reading this paper is they don't mention the idea of raising taxes, which seems like the elephant in this paper, that they're talking, you know, about all... And there is this, like, one sentence 
somewhere where they talk about how their economic model can't raise taxes, um, which <laughs> seems like a really poor excuse. Sorry, I should not malign their work. But it presumes like you could at least say at the end of this paper, you know, these things work. probably found another author. <laughs> right, let's bring in someone with that tax simulation. Maybe 13's unlucky, so go to like 14 authors. But it, it was, you know, an interesting paper. You know, it was interesting to learn what didn't work, but it just felt like this weird, odd gap. Like also knowing these people and their research um, that they didn't really explore, you know, that side of reducing inequality. Well, it, it seemed like, for one thing, the paper felt to me a little bit like it arrived through a like a like a wormhole from <laughs> the the debt ceiling negotiations from five years ago, <laughs> right? That you know, back then, as as you may recall, uh, you have uh, President Obama, uh, Speaker John Boehner. They're talking about different entitlement cut scenarios, and as you get to the end game, it gets like a little confusing, and I think. Reports still differ to this day as to exactly what was and wasn't on the table and in what scenario. But unquestionably, they were considering cuts to Social Security and Medicare, and liberals were not happy about it. And it seemed like had Obama made that deal, one talking point he would have really liked to have had in hand is, no, actually, these Social Security cuts are progressive. And this paper gives you an exhaustive look at what kinds of Social Security cuts you could characterize that way, right? So according to them, cutting the monthly cost of living adjustment, which is definitely something Obama wanted to do, is progressive in the sense that it cuts benefits for the rich more than for the poor. Um, raising the normal retirement age uh, comes out as progressive. But all these are frame. clearly cutting benefits reports. Right. People. I mean, exactly. But I mean, it, it, it just had that deal come together. I feel like this is a paper the White House would have been trying to get us to write about to say, <laughs> oh, hey, liberals, this deal is way better than you thought it was. The political conversation has, like, evolved a lot in the past five years. So now it's like, yeah, as solutions to inequality or something, like, this is pathetic and it doesn't make sense. But as if if you just accept, okay, well, we are going to cut Social Security, right? It is interesting that raising the early retirement age and raising the normal retirement age have very different distributional effects because it sounds the same. And I think to your average like house member is not going to have a firm conviction about this. So if we were talking about social security cuts, like this is a great sort of like handbook to how it works. So I have a couple thoughts on this paper. One is that I don't want to too quickly skip over the big headline finding of it. The solution section is very peculiar as Matt and Sarah said, but it is a very, very, very striking fact that the gains in longevity are being so unequally shared that benefit programs are becoming wildly regressive compared to where they used to be. That shouldn't just be skipped over. There's a number in here, which I'm going to try to find while I talk and vamp, that I think it's <laughs> that the change in... Um, oh, you've got this all out of order. I'm getting nowhere with this. Uh, <laughs> I think that the change in, in longevity... It's is, not even the paper. The difference is... Eight. <laughs> 
The difference is eight years. It's eight years. That's in the paper. Yeah. That it's the, the top quintile, men in the top quintile have gained, the, the difference in how much you've gained from the bottom quintile is eight years or 13 years. Eight years of life expectancy. Eight years of life expectancy. So that's a very big deal. And first, something we should be worried about. One thing that raising taxes on rich people to fund the social security gap, if you, you, know, you want to characterize it that way, will not solve is that we are failing to increase longevity among the poor, right? And I think we should see that as a separate and very serious public policy program, a public policy problem, just a problem in, in America today. So that part of this, I think, is very valuable. I think it's good to, to look at it, good to characterize it. And it's also good to say as a baseline, when you're thinking about how these programs need to be updated over time, I constantly hear cuts to Social Security and particularly raising the retirement age, either early or normal, justified by saying, well, look, we live a lot longer than we did when this country, when we created Social Security, which is true, we do, but we do not all live equally longer. And so thinking about how you want to update, if what we need to somehow do is update it for what has changed, that also means making, restoring these programs to a more progressive construction. And if you want to do that, then it's extremely fucking easy. You lift the cap on how much of payroll taxes are, are exposed to the Social Security payroll tax. It's not difficult. Look, the people who did this paper are smart. They understand Social Security much better than any of us do. They left out this tax issue for some reason that I don't fully understand. It's not that William Gale does not <laughs> know about the Social Security tax cap. So I'm sure that after this comes out, we will get annoyed emails about from all. all it's not in the micro simulation. All hundred and seven of the <laughs> couldn't papers be done. authors. We really should but, have annoyed on paper with fewer authors. Yeah, I, I know. Think. But it, it is a, and it may be that you know that the idea is that this paper quietly just makes the obvious case, brings you to the obvious conclusion that we're at, which is okay, raise the tax cap. But there's something I think. I think this paper should worry us, not because there isn't an obvious answer to the progressivity challenges of how do you structure social security. You could also, by the way, raise taxes on rich people, not to just fund the program, but to increase payouts to poor people. You could just increase payouts to people because you can do that and we're a richer country than we were in 1933. But I think it is a really sad fact of America over the last X number of years, and it seems to be getting worse right now at an accelerating rate, that we have this yawning difference in longevity gains. Mm -hmm. If there's something a rich, technologically accelerating country should be able to do, it is give its members longer, healthier lives. And if this paper does anything, it should remind us that when we talk about having done that, we are not talking about everybody. We are talking about people enjoying the fruits of what we have achieved extremely differently in the single kind of enjoyment or the single kind of benefit that, that matters most, which, again, it's not your Social Security check. It's whether you're around to collect it. One of the things I found interesting about this paper, I was looking for the numbers, and I can't find them because my paper is out of order. What do you do, <laughs> shuffle it? <laughs> you know, you just see what policy comes up. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> interesting way to read a white paper, I'd say. Medicare eligibility. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting kind of conceptual things this paper does is it talks about benefits in net. I think there's a lot of, we talk about particular programs, Medicare, Medicaid, um, Social Security, and it was just interesting to think about all of it as one. Like, what are all of us getting in our combination of, um, 
of programs. And I, you know, like I had gone in, I, I read a lot about Medicaid. I read a lot about safety net programs, thinking that those people would end up with more of a benefit. And at least it would have been equal a few years ago, a few decades ago. I did not realize how big that disparity was. And you know, it's an interesting way to think about the safety net, not as these different programs, but like as like, what is each of us getting from the government? I was looking up what the, I, I can't remember it. I don't know if you guys remember, because I think at some point they say, the amount that high-income people are getting and the amount low-income people are getting as a net, adding all those big programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, together. And um, I'll post it in our Facebook group or something because I can't find it now. But it was interesting That's to think... That's a good way to get people to join yeah, the Facebook group. Yeah, so if you'd like though. to know... <laughs> oh, I've right. accidentally misplaced all the key yeah, facts of this paper, but come join are. us on Facebook. Um, yeah, this was planned by our <laughs> engagement team. Um, but it, it, I think it's a really interesting way to think about benefits that we don't often... We usually think of them as different programs and to think of them as like one thing that all of us are getting different amounts of. You know, one thing that, that we could all use different amounts of is questions from the audience. Yeah. Yes, yes. Let's so I, do it. Yeah, so we have some microphones in the See, hallways. Because that's how you segue. Yes. Um, so who's going to be, I know no one likes to ask the first question, so who's going to be brave enough to? This guy wants and, to ask yeah. the first please, question. Please, oh, wow, let's, let's, let's if, if we can, you know, try to do like real, real questions. Um, you know, if you have, you know, some, some comments, some thoughts you want to share, again, Facebook group, <laughs> it's awesome. There's some great discussions happening there, but let's, let's do some questions and hopefully we'll be able to get, you know, a few people up here. All right. Thanks. So, you guys started a, a media venture recently, and I commend you for doing that as a journalist. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us how it's doing both financially and audience-wise, and also, like, what have you learned from the new approach that you're taking to, to covering the news? What's working? What's not? I want to dodge that question. Yeah, send that to our editor-in-chief. <laughs> I think I saw Marty here. So. Although I hope you guys have a lot of time. Um, so... It's doing it's great. really well financially and audience-wise, thank God. Um, Vox is profitable. We are big, uh, much bigger than we anticipated being at this point. Uh, we are, if you look at it, in com- well, I'm not going to go against competitors, but we are surprisingly large in my view. Uh, one thing that I will say I am really proud of, we had our, our most viewed piece of content ever passed 100 million last week or two weeks ago, which is a, a seven-minute explanation. <laughs> a seven-minute explanation of the Syrian civil war. And to put this in perspective, 100 million views is three times what BuzzFeed got on the dress. That is how many that is. It is a huge <laughs> fucking number. And it, it's really, it's for a seven-minute And an issue detail. that was almost as important. <laughs> <laughs> And so when, when you ask me what we've learned, and I don't mean to sound too idealistic about this, I think we've learned that there was, there was and is, because we are not close to, to meeting it, a genuine hunger for really strong explanatory content. We do not always live up every single day to our greatest hopes for our organization. But on the days we do we find that the audience is there and it is bigger and it is more interested and it is more engaged and it is more curious than we ever could have hoped. We've been rewarded again and again and again for doing good work and typically punished when our work isn't that good. Mm -hmm. And so it has left me much more hopeful about media. 
I think the media talked itself into a lot of pessimism a couple of years back. I think it told itself after often doing a bad job on important topics. Not, not a job where people didn't work hard, and I don't want to say there was no good work going on because there was tons. But I think there were a lot of places where we took complex topics and did not do a very good job with them. I think we made them more complex. I think we made it hard for people to work through them. I think we assumed that hard things should just be hard. And we blame the audience. And we said, oh, people just want cat gifts or they want to read about celebrities or whatever. And my experience, our experience at Vox has been that if you can meet people halfway, if you can give them something that looks up to their intelligence and believes in their sort of curiosity but actually makes the issue clear and interesting, that, that they will be there for it and that they will, they will meet you halfway. So it's been a great – we just turned three, uh, I think, a week and a half ago – it's been a really good three years, and we're excited to have all you fine people here. Uh, and overall, it's been a very optimistic three years, at least for, for us, in terms of what we've learned about the business, but, but what we've learned about the audience, which is that, you know, the audience wants good work and they'll reward it if you do it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, Matt, I see you tweet about this a lot, but if memory serves, I haven't heard you talk about it on the podcast before. Could you give us some thoughts on urban zoning and development <laughs> policy? And specifically, are there no. examples in the U.S. that you think are really good that you could contrast with things you don't like about D.C. or New York? Or sure. I, so, I want to say real quick, there is one gentrification episode of the week. Yeah, we, we did gentrification episode where there, there'd be more. Um, <laughs> you know... TLDR, uh, people should be able to build more stuff in expensive cities. Um, I think that if you look at the sort of... Houston is the classic, like, lax supply city that has moved to allow for more townhouses inside its, like, first two beltways, where in the very central city you can do almost anything you want. Um, Houston is not, though, the greatest city in the world in terms of wage opportunities. Uh, it has delicious food, though. Um, in terms of recent policy changes, um, Seattle has done something very interesting, where they have moved to allow a lot more construction, but only in the port. So a, a large share of Seattle has been set aside by zoning for single-family homes for a long time. And what they did was they allowed for more building in the rest of the city, right? In the places where you could already do like townhouses and small apartments that let you do bigger apartments. And it's had a beneficial effect. I mean, the Seattle economy is really booming on a number of levels. Um, that's like largely thanks to the efforts of, of Amazon. Uh, but but the city is accommodating that boom is the thing, right? Like it's, Amazon is not outgrowing the city of Seattle. Instead, the whole city is growing up with it. But still, I think it's very limited, right? The biggest gains to density are in the single-family areas where, you know, a couple houses with giant yards can easily become a dozen row houses, right? And it's cheap to build those kinds of things. When you say, okay, we can replace small apartment buildings with giant towers, uh, that construction method, it's good. It's good to allow that, but those are expensive construction methods and they generate fairly expensive houses. Um, so in a place like D.C., I mean, we could use, I think, towers downtown simply because of uh, 
you know, we have a big subway system, things like that. But it's really looking at, you know, land use in the uh, more expensive suburbs and in the sort of suburban style areas is where substantively the, the biggest gain could be made. And that's what I think people don't fully understand about this issue. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, express my disappointment. There's no live me undies ads tonight. <laughs> I, I am wearing yeah. my me undies, to be clear. I thought of that. <laughs> So it turns out this whole night has been a live MeUndies ad. (laughs) Look how comfortable Matt looks. The the fabric is very soft. No, but the the thing is the sponsors have to pay money. Otherwise, the model doesn't work. Now, uh, my question is, you talked about overlaying these sort of foreign systems on the U.S., but uh, there was, like, the public option. And uh, my question is, what do you see the mechanisms for that in the future and what it possibly would look like in maybe hopefully 2021 or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I can take the public, uh, public option. option. So I think the public option was something that we learned was not going to move through the political system in the Affordable Care Act. There was lots of haggling around it, lots and lots of disappointment around it. I think there are a lot of public, I'm sure here and elsewhere, there are many public option groupies out there who um, are still wishing for it. To so the way I could, yes, exactly. So this is the only event where you get cheers for the public option. It's not the only uh-huh. event. You should go to, to some Or go to single pay. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the way I could see it possibly emerging is this idea Democrats have kicked around a little bit, and I could see them setting up if they were in power, it is if the ACA marketplaces make it till 2020, is there's this idea that Obama and others have talked about of letting the public option come into places that did not have any sort of um, health insurance available in their Obamacare marketplace. So the Obamacare marketplaces, they depend on private insurers signing up to sell coverage. The interest has been more lukewarm than the drafters of the health care law had hoped. And um, President Obama, he wrote an article in the um, Journal of the American Medicine, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. In his free time, he is authoring um, uh, medical journal articles where he suggested this idea that in these areas where no one wants to sell, the government should be able to come in and offer a public option. So at least there is something. And I think that is a, an approach to the public option that might make it a little easier to move through. We're not talking about doing it everywhere. We're talking about doing it piecemeal. I've generally come to believe covering healthcare that um, a lot of the action will be in the states. One of the things I think you could also see is a state like California or New York or maybe Vermont setting up its own public option just in the state and testing it out there. Um, you know, I've generally come to think that a lot of the health reform work is going to bubble out of the states just like Massachusetts did in Obamacare. So I think that's one of the things you could see even before 2021 is a probably a wealthier liberal state. So basically California or New York, or, you know, maybe D.C. could experiment with it. Who knows? Um, setting up their own state-level public options, seeing how it goes, and then seeing if other states or even the national system want to replicate it. I'm going to add a little bit to that. I have a lot of public option thoughts that have gotten stronger in the last couple of years. But one thing I think people often miss in this discussion is there were two public options. Uh, the strong public option. And, and a weak, weak public, public option, public. yes. <laughs> and they got conflated. And you have, can have a strong public option that connects to Medicare's pricing power. And so it's actually a lot cheaper than other kinds of insurance. And CBO looked at something like that, and it would have at the time saved, I think, over $100 billion over 10 years. That public option would have been and would be, I think, a pretty significant game changer in American medicine. 
I am a very big fan of adding that kind of public option to the system. I think they should do that. And I think that Democrats, if they take, or Republicans, anybody should do this. Uh, well, I think a state could do it too, if they want. Could they? I don't they know if they could connect it to Medicare. But, you could just set the prices for Medicare. Yeah, that's true. Them. So anyway, somebody should do this. <laughs> um, and you could do it through reconciliation. You don't need 60. But like, that's what Democrats should do when they get back into power. Um, there's also what you, the, the weak public option, which was the public option that was on the table in Obamacare. And that one, I think, ultimately would have been a bigger deal than I thought at the time because you've had such instability in the marketplaces. Knowing you had that fallback insurer would be important. But that actually, I always thought, would have been somewhat counterproductive for folks who wanted to see that succeed because what it, what it was estimated to become was a dumping ground for bad risks because it would not do adverse pricing in the sort of quiet ways insurers do it, right? They're not allowed to do it specifically now, but there are a lot of ways of how you advertise and so forth and how you design your benefit packages to try to get people who are a little bit healthier. And so there, what CBO <laughs> estimated there was that you would have, the public option would have higher premiums. And I think the way the markets have evolved, it probably would have gotten uh, worse and worse, but it would have been an important fallback. So I think, again, like the Democrats should step up if they um, get power back and just put in a strong public option and just do it and take the blowback from the industry. And I think that is fine and it's worth doing. And it is the most viable way, I think, of beginning to attack pricing in the American healthcare system. But they had traded that off the table. I mean, they would say there weren't the votes for it, which I think was true, but they traded it off the table in their dealings with the healthcare industry very early on in Obamacare. And so what was left, um, I think people put too much hope in. But yes, it should it should come back. And I think this has been radicalizing for Democrats. I think the next Democratic administration is going to be pretty aggressive on health care. And I would say, you know, specifically, I mean, I think you're seeing a resurgence of people wanting to talk about single payer, people wanting to talk about Medicare for all. And I think that the sort of end game of that might be a bunch of politicians are elected on a Medicare for all platform you still can't actually do it legislatively, but like now you have a strong public option. Or just Medicare, right? Like it could just be Medicare for those who want it. If you like to keep, if you want something that's not Medicare, great, you can have it, but you can buy into Medicare, right? Medicare for some. Ah, the old Pete Stark <laughs> Medicare. Yes. Or Medicaid for some is another cheaper Or Medicaid option. for some. Uh, hi, thanks very much. Uh, so I've been listening to The Weeds since at least the first episode. And um, what, do you, what do you mean at least? Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> at most? At most. How much earlier could you have gone? I don't, I don't really know either. <laughs> but, and I've heard you guys talk about healthcare this whole time. And one thing that I don't think has really come up all that much is the fact that a whole lot of people are getting really rich off of our screwed up system. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is the highest rates of profit of I don't know, most sectors. Uh, right. Dentists are overrepresented in the 1%. Hospital CEOs, including nonprofit CEOs, are paid really high. Uh, we all know how much, I mean, insurance CEOs make a lot. And we haven't even talked about, you know, GPOs or pharmacy benefit managers. And so sure. it seems to me that all of these people making a ton of money off of the rest of the high prices that the rest of us are paying are the biggest obstacle to any actual meaningful health reform. And so I was wondering how you guys think about that. Yeah, I think that's generally true. I think what's you know, some people would call waste, other calls profit, and that becomes one of the really challenging things of doing policy in the United States. You know, this kind of piggybacks off of what Ezra was saying, you know, earlier about prices. But, you know, I really 
do you think, you know, the reason that health reform is so hard, that, you know, the Democratic bill nearly failed, that so many presidents have tried to do it and failed, that the Republicans are trying to do it and failing, is because we're not really willing to grapple with prices. We are not willing to price regulate in the way that Ezra was saying, you know, basically every other country does. And you end up with these insane stories. I wrote about a guy who took his daughter um, to the ER because um, her finger had gotten cut while they were clipping her nails. And he ended up with a $629 bill for a Band-Aid. Like that was just the bill they sent and it went into collections because he was refusing to pay it. And if no one is going to say no, you know, that is that is profit for the person who sells the Band-Aid to the hospital. It is profit for the hospital itself. It's profit for the people who are collecting the bills and the people who are doing the medical coding so they make sure that they get the really expensive Band-Aid, not the cheap Band-Aid. Um, you know, I think if you're interested in learning more, there's a great new book that just came out from um, Elizabeth Rosenthal, who... Um, used to be a reporter at the New York Times, now runs Kaiser Health News, called An American Sickness, that really dives into the issue you're mentioning in depth. But I think it's a huge challenge. And the fact that we've gotten so far down this road means that a lot, there's a lot of vested interest with a lot of money to spend in D.C. to push back on, you know, making a $629 Band-Aid into, like, maybe a slightly reasonable $100 Band-Aid. Like, you know, imagine that. The, the one thing take, I would yeah. say is that, you know, if if you're doing... Politics, what you want to talk about is a lot of the people that that you raised, like insurance <laughs> company CEOs, right? But where the the rubber really hits the road that makes this hard in Congress is doctors and hospitals. Because mm-hmm. you face a basic problem that if you're thinking about a legislative debate, where on the one hand you have some politicians and they're saying this is a good idea. But everybody hates politicians. And on the other hand, you have a bunch of doctors. And the doctors are saying, no, this is a terrible idea. People have a high level of faith and confidence in doctors. And some of this will be done by, like, the lobbyists for the AMA will come to Congress. But a lot of it will be done by, like, actual medical doctors who people know, who people come in to see. And they'll be like, this is terrible. They're going to ruin health care. A medical doctor is telling you that as opposed to, like, some jackass politician. (laughs) Um, Hospitals, similarly, uh, there's a lot of profit in them. There's a lot of jobs in them. If the executive of a local hospital system is like, oh, if that law goes through, we've got to close the hospital. And they're phoning up the city council, the state rep. Like, that's that's tough, right? You can – it's not that you can't do it legislatively, but it is a tricky political battle to fight community stakeholders. And, and you see it in – the problems they've had with Affordable Care Act repeal, right? That uh, Republican senators who represent states that have benefited a lot from Medicaid expansion are very leery about repeal. And the reason they're leery about repeal is that that Medicaid expansion is money in the pockets of not just low-income patients, but ultimately doctors, hospitals, other healthcare providers who have a lot of standing in the community. And, you know, people who want to push for broad, across-the-board cuts in medical prices, I'm not saying they're wrong, but it's it's good to have effective political rhetoric, but it's not good to believe your own effective political rhetoric. It's not just, like, six evil pharmaceutical company CEOs like Martin Shkreli and like some guy from AHIP. Like it's going to be all the doctors 
and most of the you know, people who work in hospitals and, in America. And I'll just say, in terms of the idea of what is the biggest problem, I think what Matt says is correct, that to the extent that you can get an applause line against someone, they're probably not the biggest problem. Like, no insurers come to Washington and say, the problem is I will be less rich. <laughs> Might be their problem, but it's not a useful political argument. I, the, the difference I have with a lot of my friends who are more uncompromising on health reform than I am is that I think people underestimate the status quo bias, the fear of just people, not insurance industry CEOs, not even doctors, people, people who have health insurance now and they may not even like it, but they sure as hell don't want the government to change it. When you think about how what happened when the Affordable Care Act was implemented, there was a medical device tax in there. And that actually did measurably hurt medical device companies. And they are very rich, and they have a very big lobby. And for a long time, Sarah and I got constant like, reach outs from <laughs> medical device industry people about how terrible the tax was. But nobody really cared that much. I mean, maybe it'll get repealed someday, but it's just not that big of a political problem for anybody. When they canceled insurance plans for roughly 3 million people, 4 million people, even though many of those insurance plans were bad, even though many of those people were going to get a better deal under the new system, it was a political catastrophe. It was an absolute fucking disaster. And the system is like that times a thousand as you abstract out. There's a ton of cost in the employer-based system. But anytime you touch that, that's 150 million people. And that's really powerful. And just, I am... There are so, as I said earlier, there's so many ways to imagine a better system. Single payer, multi-payer, I mean, everything, Singapore, everything is fine. Except that I think so much of that implies a sort of like underpants gnomes, like question mark <laughs> at step two of like you pass the bill and then you're at this new system. And in the middle is Americans who hate everything about politics. And you're coming to them and saying you're changing the thing that makes them the most afraid how their daughter gets health care, how their mother gets health care, how they get health care. And it just makes it so, so, so hard. So to me, that's the biggest problem in health care. Um, and I'm not blaming anybody for it. I think people are properly, I mean, you look at the government right now, would you trust it to, to remake your health care? <laughs> but I think that people really underestimate how resistant to change the American population is and even changes that ultimately when you look at the paper would be really good. The bigger the change is, the more disruption there is and the less willing people are to absorb that. Hi. Uh, my question has sort of do about healthcare, specifically about public health, um, uh, more, spe more specifically about climate change. Uh, sure. As we know, climate change has direct impacts on public health issues like uh, you know, bronchitis, asthma, and sort of more on a macro level, drought and famine. So how can we more effectively talk about climate change as a health issue? Thank you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a good answer on that. I, I don't think we should. Yeah. <laughs> I so. think there is in the climate change world often, there's just in a lot of, areas of public policy where people who are having a tough time on an issue from one direction want to sort of like transmute that issue to something they think is stronger rhetorical ground. So you really see some climate change by trying to talk about it as a national security issue, which I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying that's not actually the main thing. 
And I don't think people end up buying that stuff. I think you have to make a chain of arguments that at each step gets a little bit weaker. Again, not to say that the arguments aren't even correct in the end. It's just the reason we should stop the earth from being cooked, causing massive devastation and dislocation and instability, is because it would be bad. Like, we have one of these. We have one climate. We shouldn't fuck it up for the future. We should be risk-averse with it. And we do not want to be remembered as the generation that knew it was destroying the planet and decided to keep doing it because doing otherwise was sort of annoying. Um, I don't, but to the extent you can't win that argument, I don't think you're going to win a, like a public health jujitsu move. Hi. So Ezra, I really enjoyed your commentary on sort of the coercive policies of the Cleveland clinic versus traditional attitudes and realities of what Americans think about guns or soda or cigarettes. So how do you think medical professionals or policymakers could sort of work to reconcile these two competing and conflicting beliefs? I don't think they can. <laughs> um, I, I, I ju- I lightning think, round. Oh, uh, lightning. All right, fair enough. All right, we're going to get through we more of these. We're going to lightning round. From, from, from women before. <laughs> Hi. Um, first time, long time. Um, and I don't have a healthcare question. I'm so sorry. Good, uh, I'm done with that. <laughs> uh, but I'm frequently intimidated by just the sheer amount of knowledge that you guys seem to have about everything. Um, and I was just wondering uh, if you had any good recommendations for just a daily um, perusal of good policy information, obviously outside of Vox.com. Um, so. well, really, you have to read all of Vox.com before you can... Um. I mean, the NPR papers are actually really good. I really like them. Um, read books. <laughs> Um, I, I think that partic- like get off of Twitter to the extent you can, and yeah, read if you want to like lightning round. you want to read like <laughs> like learn. I find it really helpful when I'm trying to learn about a policy issue to just like get away from news coverage of it and read a textbook on it or just go to some more foundational information. I think we underweight that in the media quite a bit, and so we're always telling people what just happened, but not the underlying thing itself. And um, yeah, books. books. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually my question, but uh, uh <laughs> it's just books. First, where can we get uh, Vox T-shirts? And uh, second, should uh, Democrats reconcile with uh, like the far left in America? I think you can't get the Vox T-shirts one now, but we're working on it. It it will be done. There's um, a guy named Andrew Golas somewhere here, and you can yell at him. Yeah, the guy who's wearing the Vox T-shirt. Democrats first. should rip it reconcile with the far left. Through some means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tonight is the special election for uh, Tom Cotton's former seat. I was wondering, what do you... Th- Price. Sorry. Tom Jesus. Price. Man, this, this, man, this, <laughs> um, this I knew crowd what is just actually... <laughs> I, I, I work in this area. I should know this. Um, so what do you think has changed the Georgia 6 from a 23% in the Republican voting for Republicans under Romney to 3% under Trump. Trump. Yes, frustration with Trump. Yeah, Trump, he seems it, dumb it's, it's a, to educated people. <laughs> no, no, we're still going. <laughs> Just keep coming. Hi, I'm a really big fan of your new thing, Strike Through, and there was a really good one this week about how CNN and their quest to kind of be balanced have put a lot of people 
in support of Trump that are willing to say kind of crazy things on like CNN's goal of seeming balanced. And yeah. you guys wrote a lot of good articles about false equivalency during the election. And so as a news organization that kind of leans into its bias, uh, I, I was wondering how when you guys were starting and how it's evolved, how you've come up with your message and kind of like your goal. And if you think that that is one of the more sustainable business models, like looking forward into the news media industry. Our view is that you should do the work to understand the different sides of the debate and then clearly show that work and clearly tell the audience what your conclusion is. They can decide if they agree or don't agree, but being transparent and open in your journalism, I think, is more respectful to, to the public. Uh, and so we try to do that. And it is a good business model. <laughs> I mean, that's like keep, the timekeeper here. Keep coming. Pressure at all. Um, on PBS last night, they were saying that Trump hasn't traveled to other parts of the country like Obama has and Bush has in the past and that he hasn't traveled in, like, he's just traveled promoting himself, not policy. And so I'm wondering what the difficult challenge will be for congressional Republicans next year because they can't really campaign as far as we know on policy right now. What is the big thing that they would campaign on? <laughs> well, he was in Wisconsin today, and he complained about Canadian dairy exports <laughs> having an unfair advantage. Um, so, you know, think, things can change. I think the 2018 election is going to be challenging for Republicans to message. Yes. As we were saying, I think we're supposed to wrap I got a sign we're supposed to wrap up, so we'll make this probably our last question. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> um, I kind of remember a couple months ago, Matt, you made reference to a constitutional crisis because of the misalignment between representation and actual vote totals, unless yes. I'm mistaking you for John Lovett. Um, <laughs> but if that was accurate, um, how, do you see that manif- how do you see that manifesting in the future? And if not, why won't this be a problem? Uh, it's, it's a big problem. I think that was John Lovett, though. That doesn't, that, that doesn't sound like why I think there would be a constitutional crisis. Um, no, I mean, look, I think that if you look at the evolving demographics of the United States and you look at the way the U.S. Senate is apportioned, it's at least possible to imagine a scenario in which Democrats over a multiple periods of cycles win a majority in the House, win the presidency, uh, largely on the strength of non-white votes, but that Republicans have a kind of Senate bastion based on these, like, low population, overwhelmingly white states that would set the United States up for a, a... a dangerous kind of clash. Uh, The Senate has always not been representative, but there's rarely been a sort of systematic, stark, partisan dimension to that skew. But if you, if you look at the future, you can, you can see a path toward that happening and it would, you know, it would be a real problem for the country because there's no, there's no mechanism to change the Senate. I'll just say, I was actually thinking about it this morning, that since the turn of the millennium, 40% of the presidential elections have seen the popular vote overturned through the Electoral College. I think we keep thinking of this as a weird aberration, but 40%, I mean, if it continues on at this rate, is not a weird aberration. That's a lot. Like four out of 10. (laughs) Almost. It's almost half, you might say. I'm actually not even sure that's true. (laughs) So I, I... I don't know if that will continue. It may be that we've just had a weird run, but I think it's something that one should be concerned about. All right. 
Well, I think that was that was the Weeds Live. That was pretty great. Yes. Thank you guys for coming. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you all for coming. coming. Thanks to the Warner Theater for, for hosting us. And uh, yeah, thank we, you to. We will um, not literally yeah. see you next week, but well, thank you to we'll Peter Leonard for producing this. Yeah, thank you. Peter all. is in the back producing this, so thank you to him. Yeah. <laughs> And the Warner Theater for hosting us. Yeah, and to, we had a great events team that put this on. I don't want to try to name everybody's names because I'll forget it. And honestly, a lot of you came from quite a ways away. I know Deb is out there from New York. and We have a birthday in the house. We have a birthday in the house. So it's very meaningful to meet all of you. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you all for listening. Uh, and we will continue to exist in your ears in the future. Join the Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs>